0: What does Emmylou Harris have in common with Bob Dylan, the Beastie Boys, and the Bee Gees? Bob decided to stop doing this.
1: The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind.
0: And start doing this. Everybody must get yeah. The Beastie Boys decided to go from here. The FTA, that's what we gotta be. To there. Hey. the Bee Gees gave up Baroque pop for white suits and disco. What does this have to do with Emmylou Harris? Welcome to episode 116 of Love That Album. And After years of being a sweetheart of the rodeo, Emmylou Harris found herself at a crossroad in the 90s. She no longer had a major record label behind her. So with no expectations to make another country album in the style she was known for, she got together with celebrated producer Daniel Lenoir and allowed him to give her sound a complete overhaul. The result was the celebrated 1995 album Wrecking Ball. With a combination of Lanois production style, carefully selected songs from great songwriters, and a boldness to create arrangements not normally associated with her, Harris's album polarised the country music community. Morris is joined by Shane Pacey, guitarist and vocalist for Sydney blues funk band the Bondi Cigars to talk about their love of wrecking ball, Emmylou Harris's back catalogue, Billy Bob Thornton and the usual themes of country music, love, death, religion and regret. While Eric Reanimator is still on leave, Dave Blom returns to do the Album I Love segment, talking about Perth band Little Birdie and their album Big Big Love. So listen in as Morris and Shane explore a deeper well for some different sounds from Emmylou Harris.
3: 116 of Love That Album podcast. This is the episode that nearly wasn't. I'll probably explain on Facebook what nearly happened. I don't want to waste any more time now. But uh, on the other end of a Zencaster connection, not a Skype connection, a Zencaster connection, I'm trying something new. I have guitarist, singer, songwriter from Sydney, Mr. Shane Pacey. Good evening to you, Shane.
4: Hey, Morris. How you doing? Feeling very Zen?
3: I'm feeling very Zen. I'm feeling very casty <laughs> and very Zen. <laughs> um,. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Now, I know that we first met speaking over some Facebook music group. I can't quite think what it was, but we got into a discussion about albums that we loved and just thought, why not invite you onto the show? And you sent me a long list of albums that uh, yeah. you thought you'd be quite happy to talk about. And it was serendipitous that you picked Lou harris's wrecking ball album that was an album that i thought years ago i should have discussed but i've now found the right partner so um welcome excellent we're gonna we're uh, we're gonna have a lot of fun discussing this but for the listeners out there and they'll most likely be listeners outside of australia who may not know who you are uh let's have a little bit of a quick chat about your background Uh, you're the guitarist and singer for the bondi cigars which have been going around since the late 80s or something like that right
4: very late 80s we we kind of formed in a in an ad hoc kind of way in 89 a couple of the guys were in a band called the Hippos. So we, it was a part-time thing, but the Hippos kind of imploded and so then we decided to we become a full-time thing and we got a we got a record deal with the ABC, which is a, just an amazing thing for us it really allowed us to get to all these really weird out of the way places in Australia. Mm. And that was really the basis of being able to play it all over the country, really.
3: You see that's the interesting thing was I'd long known about the Hippos and I have their album Creature from the Black Saloon a uh, right. long time in my collection. Uh, yeah. And I remember, you know, the first time I heard the band, I said guys, I thought, oh, there's a bit of a funk vibe going, just like with the hippos there. So, yeah. uh, but it seems like it's uh, there's a, a very logical reason why there was that connection. you actually, I heard a couple of minutes so.
4: Yeah, yeah, we both grew from the same scene and lots of the same influences. And uh, Les Les Karski, he's not on that album that you mentioned there. He's that was that was when the, the hippos reformed with different people. Okay, but then they made a couple of albums before that with Les Karski, who was the other the original founder member of the Cigars. He's directly out of the funk and soul scene. He used to be in a band called Supercharge. I don't know if you remember I that
3: think I vaguely do. With they, yeah, they be, they'd go, oh no! I'm thinking of Super Nort, who did "Get Up and Dance." <laughs> Sorry, very different. No,
4: yeah, no, very different. Supercharge was that was Supercharge, "Get Up and Dance." Oh, really? So oh, well,
3: that, then I do remember.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Super Nort was "I Like It Both Ways." Oh, okay. Very different. Gotcha. Very different proposition. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was that that, that was always going to be part of the music that soul funk kind of thing. And and you know, we always we always thought that why not use those grooves? I mean, a lot of the black artists have been using them for years, like Albert King and you know, people like that. So it was logical for us to do that.
3: Well, so when you came up, an uh, artist like Robert Cray were sort yeah. of like you know, making it really big with blues music or well, his variety of blues music at an international Absolutely. level you know with yeah. a bit of funk a bit of soul and some blues and do you yeah. take much inspiration from you know, albums like Strong Persuader and Bad Influence the stuff that Robert Cray did
4: yeah Bad Influence blew my mind uh, I must admit have I haven't really kept up but that album especially I bought that just on on spec I just I, I was in the record shop in Sydney and I thought oh that looks interesting and um yeah that's really was a very influential album for me but that was the time when there was Stevie Ray Vaughan coming up and Los Lobos and a whole bunch of bands like that who all they're all like gumbo kind of bands that use you know different influences from different
3: places and
4: that's always been a big part of what I do I don't like to be a purist about no. anything I haven't got the patience for it
3: <laughs> <laughs> so well let me ask you what was the blues scene like in Sydney because that's where you guys came up from correct?
4: Ah, it was brilliant. When I when I first came into it, I'd been trying, you know, I'd been just playing in original bands, always loved soul and blues and stuff, but I was trying to like, kind of, a, you know, home my own row really, and with just my own songs. I managed to weld all that together eventually, but I just kind of fell into the Sydney blues scene by accident, in a way, just going to the gigs. But it, there's there's an area in the inner west of Sydney where just there were just, every pub had, like, blues or, 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 or any kind of roots blues you can think of, western swing, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you could just go from pub to pub, it really was an education, and, uh, what well, it was entertaining as well so I just wanted to be part of that
3: mm-hmm. uh, and was, was it easy to find other musicians who felt you know, in, a, in a similar sort of way I mean did you meet a lot of these guys from what you said like you work with Les but I guess I'm asking did Sydney have a big sort of like a jam session scene would you meet musicians th- through those
4: Nah that's more of a recent phenomenon really, it's, really? it was more that you, you kind of had to you, you, you sort of had to um, get to know the people and, and and show them that you were serious and then most bands would let you get up and play but you know, as long as you could, they could Kind of tell that you were, and there had to be a little bit of personal recommendation happening there as well. And I, I was lucky enough that I'd, I really started off playing blues when I was a kid. I was I was into you know mm. Peter Green and all that all that early British blues stuff. So I could handle it pretty well, and I could sing. And I didn't become professional until the Bondi Cigars, and that was when I was thirty. Before that, I'd just been in a kind of part-time bands. So, I, but I've been professional ever since. And that's, that's thirty. It's years interesting ago. that you <laughs> so. say that
3: Sydney didn't really have back then much of a jam session scene, because yeah. in Melbourne it was always a huge yeah. thing. They had any number of pubs. You know, sometimes the RSA. But you know, a bunch of pubs in Richmond. I remember going often to yeah. um, the Swan Hotel yeah. in Richmond, and there was a band called the Mudcats, which featured members of the Paramount Trio and a whole yeah. bunch of yeah. other people who just, and everyone would love to come every week and just have a go. And there were some fantastic musicians from the scene who just did it for the fun of it or just did it to meet other people. So yeah. just unusual that Sydney didn't really have that, that thing going back then.
4: It may have done, but I don't recall there being any. Uh, it was all, I mean, there were just too many pubs with bands on. I, I don't recall that. It, it, there isn't, There are now, there are about four five jam nights on in Sydney now but um, and I do I do remember when I first went down to Melbourne we did go to a few of those um, one that right, a yes, boys yes. used to run um, I don't remember I can't remember where it was yeah. but um, and I was amazed by that and that's probably why Melbourne's seen well they're very different scenes really you know um, Melbourne's much more inclusive it's much more rootsy you know the pubs have kept on having bands where most of the pubs we used to play in have all become middle class kind of you know mm-hmm. gastro pubs or gambling places so yeah, it's a bit tough for a new band coming up we're okay because we get to tour but uh, yeah, yeah it must
3: I be imagine. so uh, did you get anything in the way back in that original period of uh, radio airplay I imagine the ABC would have given you some backing.
4: Yeah, we did okay actually we put out a, a cover of cry to me um that was a, that was our first single and ABC put a bit behind it they made a clip and it got played on TV a fair bit and it was really we didn't it, it wasn't a hit the album sold quite well but it really just sold in all uh, some ridiculously out-of- the-way places and it really just allowed us to, to become a touring band and that's that's it was worth its wedding gold so that, what really
3: are there. your projects now so i, I see that you know, the uh, the bonday cigars are still a going concern and you're still gigging around but the number of albums seem yeah. to have dropped off over the last decade or so, do you find that you just sort of go into the studio to record just to have some new material that people who come to see you may want to get familiar with, or it's not so much of a...
4: Yeah, look, we did one about... Yeah, we, we put an album out about three years ago. I dare say there probably won't be another Bond like Cigars album. can't really see that happening now, but we're still... We're more of a sort of a part-time band now, in a way. We, we, we come we come together if there's something worth doing, you know, like if there's a festival and we might book a few gigs around that. We've always got something coming up, but it's not constant. I have a trio as well now, and that yeah, seems I've seen some take
3: some up a fair footage. bit of time. I've seen some footage on
4: That's YouTube. It's more of a power trio. Still, yeah oh thanks <laughs> yeah so that's more that started off as a way to cause, because the, the cigars weren't working very much uh, I just needed to keep playing so I put a trailer that was mainly covers and now that's become a band that features quite a lot of my songs as well so yeah I, I, I couldn't write songs I don't think I'd be into it for very long That's really what I do the most it's that's the area that interests me and and the improvisation part of it you know something different right. has to happen every night or yeah. I get bored
3: okay well look uh-huh. uh, at the end of the show what we'll do is we'll um, yeah. get some links from you tell how people can uh, search you out um, Facebook, your own websites, how they can uh, yep. go, uh, how they can buy albums if you still have physical media available or downloads or any of that sort of thing. We'll provide those links at the end of the show. But what we'll do sure. for now, um, we're going to be speaking about an album that I think is near and dear to both our hearts, Emmylou Lou Harris's album Wrecking Ball from 1996. Yes. And later on in the show, well, we normally have the album I Love segment, which is done by Eric Reanimator. Uh, in case you didn't listen to last month's episode of the show, uh, let me tell you when that Eric is going on a two-month sabbatical and he just decided he needed a little bit of out time from recording podcasting stuff and he'll be back in October of 2018 raring to go with his album I Love segments and with his Love That Album Compilation Edition so this month I have once again contracted the use of my very good friend Dave Blom and he's gone and recorded an album I Love segment for you he'll be speaking about uh, the album from Perth band Little Birdie and uh, the album is called Big Big Love released in 2004. so later on on the show He'll be uh, explaining why he loves that record and all the things that you should be listening to about it. So we'll be back in a moment or two to talk about Lou Harris and Wrecking Ball, not Bruce Springsteen's album Wrecking Ball, which I think we've already covered at some stage on the program. So the only podcast that covers two albums with the same name. You're listening to Love It Album with Morris on this end and Shane on that end. We'll be back shortly.
0: We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion.
3: Hi, I'm Waters. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert
5: Tune. Miguel Ferrer.
1: Nancy Allen. Robert
5: Davi. It's Richard Elfman.
1: Ileana Douglas.
5: Patrick Warburg. Hauser, Cliff D. Young. Steve Railsback. Mr. T.
2: William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemark since 1994. Before. Since early 2011, I've been co hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything, I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection booth.com.
3: Shane over in Sydney, myself, Morris, here in Melbourne, and we're here to talk at you about Lou Harris's 1996 album, Wrecking Ball. So I think the most spoken about aspect in relation to the release of Wrecking Ball is how drastic a change in style it was from what Lou Harris fans or even people who weren't necessarily fans knew about her work. So the question that I want to lead off with asking you, Shane, is, were you an Lou Harris fan pre-Wrecking Ball or was this where you jumped on the Lou Harris train?
4: No, I was a fan. I had about four of her albums. She, she put out a whole stream of albums that were really all the same. You know, they were all on the Warner Brothers label and they, they all had very similar covers. They all had very similar songs in them. Same band. She had a hot band, and uh, she just did that for like years. I, I loved them, and I loved her. I was a big fan from seeing her on the Last Waltz when she sang Evangeline.
3: Right, right. They used to walk-
4: Yeah, I mean, I know I'm a blues guy, but you know, I go to lots of places. This was radically different. I heard a couple of tracks on radio first. I could recognise the voice, but the sound of it was something else.
3: I mean, I'll confess that before this album came out, I wasn't really a fan of the sort of country music that she was associated with. I mean, I'd become a big fan, I guess, of the whole no depression alt. Country movement, you know, bands like Uncle Tupelo and the like. But I I think for the traditional country fans, there was an element of what the hell is this? Just like maybe jazz fans sort of thought listening to jazz fusion in the seventies and in the eighties, what the hell is this? But through listening to this, and then I thought, right, well, I better go back and reassess. And I still wouldn't necessarily say I'm a huge devotee of the early works, although, you know, some of those early albums I really do like. You know, I like Elite Hotel. Yeah. All all beautiful stuff. But this is where I started to think, Oh my goodness, you know, this is a gorgeous voice and she's got material that she's really doing justice to. Yeah, it was it was played an awful lot down here on 3 Triple R. So you, you said you heard it on the radio up in Sydney?
4: It was. The, we had a station that lasted about a year called Kick AM. It was the 2SM that rebranded themselves, and they sort of took this formula from America, which is part blues and part country. It didn't work. There wasn't enough blues, and there wasn't enough country, and so if you're a blues fan, you'd have to sit around and wait. It was a bad formula for here. I heard a lot of good stuff on there, but they also played a lot of that generic Nashville rubbish, that sausage factory Nashville music, which I don't have much time for, so... You know, like, um Alan Jackson and all that stuff. I, it doesn't really do it for me. <laughs> so, but then just I used to put it on because I thought on the off chance I might hear something. Right. They thrashed uh, Wrecking Ball and Sweet Old World from this. And they're two, they're probably the more, we'll get into it, but I guess they're, they're two the more, more conventional songs on the album. But I could still tell that it was just not like what she would normally sound like. There were just things going on that I didn't even recognize really at the time until I got to know a bit more about the chap we're about to talk to.
3: Mm, mm. Look, just sort of sidelining for a moment, it seemed that the other country artist who at about the same time had something of a rebirth with a wide audience but wasn't really sort of going into such an esoteric type of recording style was Johnny Cash with those series of American recordings that Rick Rubin did.
2: Like a bird on a wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to
3: be free. In this case, we have Daniel Lanois, who seemed to be able to do wondrous things with people like Bob Dylan and Emily like Harris, and then later on with Willie Nelson. It was quite amazing that you were getting Rick Rubin, who'd been, you know, working with people in Cross, I think in the metal world. He was getting Johnny Cash to sing songs from the likes of Nick Lowe and Glenn Danzig and Tom Waits and Nick Cave and Soundgarden.
4: Yeah, it was a very similar kind of move, wasn't it? It was trying to pitch somebody with more of a traditional audience to maybe younger or hipper people.
3: And yet with Johnny Cash, I don't think that they went too far. almost said that they rolled things back. You know, there were some songs which had a whole band and you had Ben Montench and the like sort of playing backup keyboards, but a lot of it was just Johnny Cash and a guitar and you know, his voice in Rick Rubin's lounge room. So it was really very back to basics.
4: Yeah, that first one was definitely just Johnny Cash and a guitar. And a microphone. Mm. Um, that the very first one. I think that was the, the American Recordings one. The Soundgarden stuff came a bit later, I think. But see that that first one was as, as revolutionary a move for Johnny Cash as I think as this album was for her, because he'd been in that Nashville thing of. Having all, you know, making quite traditional sounding records really as far as Nashville went. And it was, it was a kind of a big move for him just to showcase just him and his voice and his guitar. So it would have been as a bit of a left turn for, for his fans as this one would, would have been for hers, her fans. Mm, you know? Right, right. <laughs>
3: comes along and sort of applies his, I don't know if it was patronhood, but certainly his iconic shimmer, you know, the the sort of style that he was more known for delivering to bands like U2. and
4: Yeah, U2 and uh,
3: Peter Gabriel. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, so albums like So and Us, he had that style, and then he went and put out his own album, which... You now we'll come to in a moment okay dear. but let's sort of return just back to the early recordings for a moment of emmy Lou. my familiarity with those early albums even to this day is still not particularly strong i mean as i said i like you know elite hotel and pieces of the sky i tend to think that she worked better at least to my ears on the slower songs so you know things like you know, for no one or uh, i think we were discussing on facebook the other week you know from boulder to birmingham I don't
1: I got on this airplane just to fly, and I know there's life below me, but all that you can show me is the prairie and the sky, and I don't want to hear a sad story.
4: Yeah, well, she wrote that, which, yeah, uh, that was her song. Yeah,
3: amazing, yeah, for Graham Parsons. Hickory Wind on Evangeline, she does How High the Moon, so, you know, her tribute to Mary Ford.
1: Somewhere there's
4: Yeah, that's right, yeah. I thought what she was doing wasn't particularly strictly straight country. I thought she was carrying on that Grand Parsons tradition in a way. (laughs) You know, she kind of inherited his band, really, and uh, just carried on doing the same kind of thing as he was. You can't really call it straight country. It's probably more a mixture of country and American song, folk even.
3: Well, she originally sort of classified herself as a folk singer. It wasn't until I think she met Graham that she sort of decided, oh, hang on, this country music thing is a bit all right, isn't it?
4: Yeah, and she she certainly was a good foil for him, and uh, I think most people would have first heard her either there or singing on the Bob Dylan album.
3: Desire, yeah. That's right. She, one more cup of coffee.
4: Yeah, well, she's all over it. She sings, yeah, she sings on about five or six of the songs, and she tells a story about not uh, t- oh, typically with Dylan not getting any kind of rehearsal, just having to watch his mouth.
3: <laughs> that's <laughs> so right. She yeah, could yeah. Follow that's, what he was
4: ridiculous. doing. So, so that's where most people would have heard her first, I think, and and seeing the band movie.
3: Let's uh, bring up a little bit about. The man of the moment, Daniel Lenoir. Shane, do you remember the first album that you heard that you sort of associated? Your you ears pricked up and think, well, this sounds a little bit different.
4: Yeah, well, I, it wasn't U2, because even though I kind of had the first two U2 albums, uh, I very quickly got jack of them and didn't, really listen to, <laughs> didn't, didn't listen to much after that. But it would have been No oh Mercy, I think, the, the, the Dylan album. Which, right, right. Yeah.
2: Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads.
1: i
4: Which is again for Dylan. Uh, Dylan's not a big fan of record production, as, as far as I know. He likes just to record his songs live with his band and sing live. If you read Dylan's book, his autobiography, you see that they butted heads a lot about how these recordings were done. But certainly, that album is one of my favourites of that, you know, the eighties of Dylan because he didn't. He made some shockers around <laughs> through that period, and that seemed to be like a rebirth for him.
3: Basically, between Infidels and Oh Mercy, there was very little that. I was that interested? Although having said that, one of the great songs from Wrecking Ball, "Every Grain of Sand," came from I think was it "Shot of Love."
4: Yeah, look, there's there's usually at least one or two great songs on on any Dylan album that you can think of, really, even even. Uh... Empire Burlesque has got a couple of good songs on it. Yeah, Yeah, so. Oh, the production kills that album. Yeah, no, no, it certainly does. But it's got ring, I think it's, is it ring them bells on that, that one? I think it's just
3: ring them bells is on our mercy,
4: isn't it? There is a song like that on, on, um, Empire Burlesque. It's just a, it's just him and his guitar and it's right at the end of the album. So Dave Stewart would have just tacked it on the end, but it's the best song on there. Yeah. So yeah, that wasn't a good period. And, and a lot of Dylan fans hate, even hate. Oh mercy! Because of the production, as much as they do Empire Burlesque, they think it's too gimmicky and too much Daniel Lanoir and not enough Dylan. I don't think that, but I, feel, I know that some Dylan fans do. I
3: th- I mean, actually, to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. I mean, that's that's a shock to me. Yeah, because uh, cause, you know he, he'd return with such great songs, and yeah, sure, it doesn't sound as live and. In your face is, you know, a great album like Desire or something like that, but he hadn't made Desire for, you know, 15 years. So I think it's a beautiful sounding album.
4: Yeah, me too. But I mean, I remember um, an interview with Elvis Costello and they were talking about Time Out of Mind, which Lanoir also produced, saying he didn't, he hated Oh Mercy because of, it was just stamped with Lanoir's sound. And I, I, I've seen it. I mean, I've spoken to Dunn fans as well that say they don't like it for the sound, but you know, being a, being a sound freak, it's all good with me. <laughs>
3: Of course. So I mean, he worked with Brian Eno and, as you said before, Peter Gabriel and and a band I really love, the Neville Brothers. Well, i, I got to confess, there's one album that he did from that whole period that I didn't like, but I think it was the songwriting I wasn't crazy about as much as the production. That was uh, Robbie Robertson album. The oh, big yeah, one. yeah. I'm not sure if this is his first album in years or just – something new that he was trying to... Mm. That was one collaboration I didn't think that worked.
4: No, because the songs weren't there. I mean, it's, yeah. it's okay having this sound, but if the songs aren't there, then, you know, you're just going to have a sound,
3: aren't you? You know, that's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
4: like The beauty of this album is it's just packed with amazing songs.
3: Right, right. Well, I, I'd be interested in knowing. I haven't sort of read anything either way that said whether it was Emily Lou who selected the songs or... Daniel said, let me suggest you do this one, or it was a collaborative sort of thing.
4: I reckon I can pinpoint the songs that Lenoir might have chosen and the ones that she might have chosen. Uh, Right. We can get into that a little bit.
3: I just wanted to mention one other important connection to Lenoir. I want to speak a bit more about this actually in a couple of minutes. But just for the moment, I think 1989 being an important year with releasing Oh Mercy, which, you know, we agree at least is a great song, but it was also, I think, the year that AKD came out and the song which I think will forever be associated with his name, which is The Maker. Yeah, brilliant. Even though it wasn't on Wrecking Ball, we know that Amy Lou has performed it live and Willie Nelson has performed it on his album Teatro and he got good value using it in the film Sling Blade over the closing credits. It just seemed so appropriate. And it just seemed like everywhere that you went that was... Lenoir related, you got The Maker and I mean, why not? He probably thought, oh, geez, I've written a good song here, let's see if I can flog it a bit
4: it, Absolutely, it's brilliant and you know the, it, it 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 is this down track on that album even though that album's got some other great songs on it, but um, any person who loves great songs would want to sing it, I've done acoustic versions of it but oh, if you wow. lose that kind of harmonised bass line that's on there, you kind of lose half the song in a way, it's one of those things where an arrangement idea sort of just lifts the song out of be, from being a good song into a great song mm, mm.
3: we often hear from songwriters that they say you know if I can record it simply it's a great song it doesn't need to have the big band sort of thing and this is a great song but you're right it does need what the bass line delivers it or what the production delivers it Yeah, and that doesn't take anything away from how it's greatness
4: no it's just enhancement really I mean this album's full of enhancement rather than any of these songs can be done with an acoustic guitar I think on Wrecking Ball and certainly that one can be that recording has really got all the elements that this album has. You can list them all and
3: they're all there. It could be sort of asked what prompted Emmylou to make such a radical change at this point in her career now. I watched one of those BBC documentaries which sometimes can be a little bit light, but you know, thank goodness there is T V network that is pouring money into music documentaries and even though they're not always necessarily you know in depth, but they do lots of them, so thank goodness that the BBC considers music important enough worth documenting. So on that documentary they said that by the time they got to just before Wrecking Ball, her last couple of Warner Brothers albums had sold absolutely nothing. And uh, all those years of greatness and selling lots of records meant for nothing so you know that saying i like to frequently bring up you're only as good as your last failure really sort of held true to um, warner brothers yeah
4: yeah well there's a funny story about it, it was on non-such wasn't it the label that
3: that that well, it, was on, which- it ended up being on, so like the album before this and wrecking ball originally i think came out as independent records and then non-such picked them up Later on and then redistributed yeah. that, but I think originally it was an independent album.
4: All right. Cause I'm not nonsuch. It was an independent label. Then Warner Brothers ended up buying it. She really ended up being back on it's a similar story to what happened to Wilco. Yeah. Cause they got kicked off Warner Brothers and taken up by nonsuch. And then Warner Brothers took nonsuch up again
3: ended up paying for uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Yeah, I don't think you could have written a fictitious script as funny or as clever <laughs> as real fact in that film, I'm trying to break your heart. For those of you listeners out there who haven't caught this film, even if you're not a Wilco fan, and I can't imagine why you wouldn't be, it's dark and bleak but blackly comical by the end.
4: certainly shows the torture that bands can go through to make an album. You'd think seeing the difficulties that they had, that could have easily been a terrible album just because of the horrors they went through. It didn't. It was It was as revolutionary as this
3: This is, you know, in in its own way. Exactly. It was a good companion piece, I think. But my heart goes out to Jay Bennett. I mean, I know he and Jeff Tweedy clashed, and the film sort of makes him out to be – I don't think actually the film makes him out to be a villain or anything like that, but it does show that there was a a clash of the egos, and they came out on top, and he ended up just sort of playing in a little nightclub away from the thousands of people who Wilco was still – being seen, and you know, just he ended up dying a few years later.
4: The songwriter will always win, mate.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, if, if, if Jay Bennett had his way, he would have you know, had more of a songwriter. credit. He, he was as brilliant in his way as Jeff Tweedy is in his.
4: Oh, absolutely. You could tell that sonically he was the, the architect of that album. Absolutely.
3: So coming back to Amy Lou, I think as this documentary went and pointed out, she could have gone the way of the greatest hit circuit and still made something of a living.
4: Yeah, yeah. But
3: really, that was not her way, and she wanted to do something different, and I'm not quite sure if I remember how she ended up meeting Daniel Lenoir but he proposed let's try something and she thought well I've got nothing to lose and you know she ran the risk and, and uh, artistically and I guess from an audience perspective it paid off I mean I know her traditional fan base there are some who did say what the hell is this but she gained a lot more people in the process who would not have sort of paid her attention otherwise and hopefully have gone back through the archives.
4: I'd like to know what the stats are but I don't think many of our hardcore fans would have been too insulted by this album because it's still song-based and it's still her voice is placed front and centre. There might have been some that just wanted the you know the Albert Lee guitar and the you know the acoustic guitar and the Rodney Crowell the usual set of suspects but no, I think, I think it would have been reasonably well received. I haven't really seen any information about how her hardcore fans would have seen it really.
3: But I mean, wasn't that the whole period where what they, I guess they called corporate country, that was what was selling. So, I mean, obviously Emmy Lou Harris fans were not going to be paying any attention to that, but what was selling country records was not what had sold country records 10, 15, 20 years before that.
4: If somebody had, had, would have hassled Emily Lou Harris to make a corporate country album they would have got short shrift I think she, she, she couldn't do it she, it's not in her DNA to be able to do that anyway she not want to be one of those Trisha Yearwood types she couldn't have done it. so whatever she's going to do it was either going to be more traditional or more weird. <laughs> she went more weird I think.
3: Let's talk about the individual musicians on the album. We've already spoken about Lenoir as a producer. Let's talk about him as a musician. The words that I keep coming up with are shimming or ethereal, but he also gives a lot of this dark feedback uh, yeah. and these these what sound like backward loops and all yeah. that sort of thing. So from a guitarist perspective... When you first heard this, did you think, wow, he's revolutionary? Cause he's, he's not trying to play a million notes per second. That's not his no. way, but I imagine he could, but he's really going for the sonics.
4: Yeah. Is into soundscapes and um, he always has been. And I mean, he plays nearly all the guitars on this album. There's some acoustics that Emily Lou plays, and there's a bit of somebody else plays a bit of acoustic guitar. But
3: I think S- Steve Earle plays on "Goodbye," yeah. plays acoustic on "Goodbye." Yeah,
4: yeah. Some, uh, and, but but quite a lot of the acoustic is um, Daniel Lanois too, and he lots of um, Dobro, pedal steel, which is his kind of I think he considers it his main instrument, dulcimer, and and lots of electric guitar and. He's a guy that likes to mess around with the sound of the guitar as much as possible, too. So a lot of it's very, very treated. There's not a lot of treble. No, there's not, no. No, uh, in, all, in any of the guitar sounds, tends to kind of roll a lot of the top end off, and he tends to treat them with lots of delay and reverbs. He's very big on reverb in on all the instruments, really.
3: And he goes a lot with the, the low rumbly sound. So when you think about their interpretation of Jimi Hendrix's May This Be Love and in bits in Deeper Well, which we'll get to as a song shortly, but the bass rumble on that is very interested in sonics. And it goes to show that you can have terrific songs and you can have production yeah. in its own right, work hand in hand.
4: Yeah. Well, her, the, the album she put out after this, which uh, Red Dirt Girl, it, is sonically very similar to this. Um, it, it was done by Malcolm Byrne. He was an off-sider of Lanoir, so she obviously didn't want to work with Lanoir again or chose not to, but it's not as good because the songs aren't as good. All the sounds very much similar to this, but she wrote a lot of the songs and unfortunately, even though she's written a few good ones, I don't think she can keep it up for her whole album.
3: I like Red Dirt Girl a lot, but I agree. It's not songwriting-wise in the same league. But you've got to be fair, in Wrecking Ball, she had about nine or ten different songwriters. This is it. <laughs> the cream, as opposed to herself, who had barely written songs for her, herself. She was a song interpreter all these years. But I, I still think it's wonderful that... Yeah, that's right. ...Lanoir had obviously gone yeah. and encouraged her, you really need to find a voice of your, of your own, like from a songwriter's perspective. And for an album that's predominantly her in the songwriting department, yeah, I still think it's a, a really solidly good album. You know, once again, not in the Wrecking Ball fame, but very few could be it.
4: No, that's right. But it, but it just shows you that, I mean, I, I, I kind of enjoy that album, that uh, Red Dead Girl more for its sound. And I, I can enjoy an album mm. as long as the songs aren't terrible because you do get that occasionally too. Well, the Robbie Robertson album is a good example. They're not terrible. They're just not, I mean, you know, there's no Orphan Girl on there or, you know, uh, May This Be Love. You know, there's there's just a whole bunch of kind of typical Emmylou-type songs, and they're fine. So it's a very enjoyable album to listen to. But It's all about the Sonics.
3: So the bass player on Wrecking Ball is Daryl Johnson, who... I'd actually confused for a while with Daryl Jones, another bass player who'd worked with Sting and has been in the Rolling Stones ever since Bill Wyman left, but two different people. I think he originally um, came from New Orleans, so he'd played... Yeah, Neville Brothers. Yeah, yeah, he was yeah. part of Neville Brothers, played, played on their album uh, Brothers Keeper, which was also produced by Malcolm Berners, it turns out. He played for Marianne Faithful and Bob Dylan and Lisa Germano. And I went back to my album collection, and found out that he plays on the title track of Ross Wilson's album from the 80s, Dark Side of the Man. That's him on the bass... On that one song, not over the rest of the album, but on that one song. So he formed part of Emmy Lou's touring band after this album, along with Brady Blade and Buddy Miller. They call themselves sort of Spy Boy. Do you remember there's that live album?
4: Absolutely. I was going to talk when we, when we get to May This Be Love, I was going to talk to you a little bit about that.
3: Oh, sure. Sure. Absolutely. So yeah. So there's just some beautiful playing from him. And I think all my tears. Oh, yeah. It's an acoustic gospel song about accepting one's time of dying and you're getting this low, rumbling, melodic bassing that he's doing. And that's partly in thanks to Lenoir's production. I think, in a way, Johnson is the king of that song. Yeah,
4: yeah. Deeper Well, is I think it's the production centrepiece of this album because it's just everything's there. Yeah, it's just put together and everything sonically is in its place. And you get things just looming in out in, into the picture and then back out of the picture. Like acoustic guitars will just loom in for a few bars, and then just pull back again. And it's, hmm. it's amazing to listen to.
3: I was going to come now to the third instrumental member of the band. I mean, there are other musicians who float in and out, but the third primary member of this album and you've already sort of gone and referred to the drums, and you said Larry Mullen Jr., so yeah. you you have a thought. I'll, I'll say mine in a minute. But-
4: well, my theory is it says that Larry Mullen plays on a, most of the tracks, but quite a lot of these tracks sound like loops to me, and if if Larry Mullen's playing on them, he's either playing over loops or they're taken from some other – at least half of these tracks to me sound like repeating loops. I you probably haven't noticed, but the one thing you won't hear on this album anywhere is a cymbal. There's none. I listened to it on the way to the gig last night in the car, and I listened to it again today just to make sure. There's a bit – There's a, a, I think it's a crash cymbal repeating every four bars on May This Be Love, <laughs> yeah. and that's it. There's, there's
3: hi-hat, obviously, but – um. I can think of one other song for sure where there is cymbal use. All right. <laughs> so I, can, I can think of two. I must have missed it. If we're going to count hi-hats, I can think of two. What's Across Texas Tonight is using closed hats – And we... Funnily enough, the only other song that I can think of, now that you mention it, that uses cymbals is the one song that he doesn't play on. And that's the opening song, Where Will I Be? will I be in context, I need to sort of talk about Larry Mullen's contribution to the rest of the album. Now, I don't want to be unfair. Uh, anyone who knows me, anyone who's listened to this podcast before, anyone who's seen me post things in Facebook knows I am not a U2 fan, have never been a U2 fan. I'm not going to shitbag them on this program because I try to keep away from negativity. That's not my way. But they've never been a band that's spoken to me. And Larry Mullen Jr., I mean, maybe it's because... He just happened to be around and he said to Daniel Ngua, look, I'm a, I'm an Emmy Lou fan. So, oh, well, why don't you come and join us for the sessions on this album? I mean, look, what he plays on the album for the most part is fully serviceable. So I'm not going to take it away from that. And a lot of what he plays is what the songs require. And there's this very, oh, I, I can't quite think of the word, very earthy, very tom, tom heavy. Sort of feel about it and it works incredibly well for these songs. But when you think of the military precision and the inventiveness that I can't remember if it was Brian or Brady Blade plays on the opening cut, uh, where will I be? The difference in the two drummers is immediately apparent. You know, without checking the credits, you know it's not the same musician.
4: So I, I find that the drums on this album are kind of well, Lanois doesn't really put the drums front and centre anywhere in his productions. He's interested in drums, but he doesn't want them to dominate. He he wants them to have their sonic space, and he wants the guitars to be kind of dominating, I think. And so for for that period where the drums, you know, you'd listen to an album of the drums, would just be like cannons, you know, he doesn't have the drums in the mix like that. But on Where Will I Be, they certainly are a bit more front and centre, probably because they're just... That's so beautiful.
3: It sort of has that military precision with those, uh, that rolling snare. Yeah, it's very New Orleans. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's much better. That because there I go saying it's military precision, but I think yeah, New Orleans is a much much better comparison. Yeah,
4: they're definitely part of that marching band tradition. It's in fact, that's with a bit of funk added to it. That's what they all are really. They they're all marching rhythms, and so.
3: But it's still very inventive. It's he's not yeah. playing the same pattern all throughout the rest of the song. The, the fills are great and he changes it up even when he's sort of trying to give the consistent pattern and there's dynamic there. Uh, and I just, I really love what Brian Blade brings to that song.
4: I think it's more that the percussion is is more the feature of this album rather than kit drums. There's some tracks where, the, where I'm not really hearing any kit drums at all, but I'm hearing hand percussion and stuff like that. So I think he's much more in- interested in that. Larry Mullen played on Acadia as well, Acadia. Um, mm. Yeah. And I think so. I think Jobs for the Boys, mate.
3: All right. Okay. <laughs> so let's finally get to the album and its themes itself. So, as we've already gone and discussed, this is predominantly a covers album on paper. You know, the songs, though, were very carefully chosen, not just through arrangements and through production to sound cohesive. So you have songs that, all the great country song themes, you know, death, religion, love, breaking up, all these sort of things, they work well to make it sound cohesive. And I had another great thought earlier on today. Well, I have that one great thought in my lifetime, which I'll bring up later on, which makes it sound why the first song and the next-to-last song sort of bookend. The album. If they would have put "Waltz Across Texas" tonight in the middle, then I would have thought "Orphan Girl" would have been a great thematically for a reason. But I'll bring that up when we get to that. It's a very somber album, isn't it? You know, it, it is. It's not, it's, there's not a lot of laughs on it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like Ricky Gervais. She's not having a laugh.
2: Are you having a laugh?
1: Is she having a laugh? <laughs>
4: no, no, it's not. That's why you know. I think they put "Waltz Across Texas" and "Black Hawk" at, towards the end because they're probably they don't really fit in with the somber theme as much. But there were, I mean, it's definitely one of those albums. I, 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 was, I was thinking when I was listening to it in the car last night that it, it's one of those albums like Astral Weeks that almost sounds like one long song. When, if you, when you first hear it, it definitely does. Sure. You start sorting out the songs from one another, and then, and then you realize every song is really different. But it, it could be almost like a song cycle of similar moods, and that's what they were going for. Yeah,
3: it. I can see, I can see that. But somber's okay? You know. <laughs> but you see, the beautiful thing about Emmylou Harris's voice is that she appreciates dynamic so well. So you, yes, we can get the somber. But I mean, I guess we never really get completely happy on this album. But we get hopeful yeah, absolutely. in her voice. Yeah. We get dark. We we're almost evil in her voice on deeper well. She really appreciates dynamic so well. But when she pulls it back, it's light and it's fragile, but never waif like. She always stands in control. But there's. Still something that can be so inherently sad and a perfect example of how sad she can get or how fragile she can say is on the album's second cut goodbye. steve Earle wrote vaguely remember reading somewhere don't remember whether it was an interview with him or in an article or in some liner notes where he said that i think Lou harris might actually even sing backup vocals on the trainer coming acoustic version of this song and he speaks about her as if she's the great love of his life we're talking about a man who's been married seven times I think every guy who's ever recorded with her uh, or worked with her was madly in love with her. I can't remember, in the documentary, it might have been Rodney Crowell, who she wrote "Walt Across Texas tonight with, who uh, professed his love for her.
4: These guys love a person that sings with truth, and that's one thing, she never fakes it. She always means it. There are technically much better singers in some ways, I think. That's not everything. It's more that the fact that she takes whatever she's singing... And sells it to you, and that you believe it. It's much more important, I think, than everything else. And you're right. She inhabits the song, and like all good singers do, like Sinatra did, you know, or you know Bobby Bland, any of these great singers, they they live in the song for you. And you know, I think it takes it out of them to do that. It takes it out of a singer to live in a song like that especially night after night after night. That's why a lot of them kind of go the way they go. But she's still going, so she's obviously learned how to do it and not tax herself too much by doing it.
3: There's no other voice, to my mind, certainly not in pop music and not even in country music, that really sounds like her. And as you've been saying there, Shane, it's about the truth and about the honesty. There's no singer's emphasis on diction. This is not the sort of voice that sounds like it's been trained it just sounds like I'm opening up my mouth and this is what my heart says and this is how I can give voice to it yeah
4: that's right. That's, that's definitely what I get from her. You know, more than being blown out by her technical abilities, which is never that important to me anyway. Most mm. of my favourite singers aren't magnificent singers. There's, there are a
3: few. Look, I mean, I think the singers who do it the least for me are the ones who try those vocal acrobatics. What's it, a m- uh, melisma? Is that is that the expression? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Geez, I hate that. But you know, she does something better. She gives us world weariness and wistfulness and, and yeah, deep absolutely. regret.
4: You know, she certainly lives the songs for you, for the listener.
3: Well, I mean, look when she sings in this song but I recall all those nights down in Mexico one place I may never go in my life again
4: oh. mm. you believe it don't you
3: she breaks your heart I mean, when Steve L sings it it's you think oh that's a sad lyric but in her heart you yeah. know, you're almost bawling your eyes out.
4: Well, that's that's what she wants you to do. I think she would feel as though she'd failed if she didn't get some kind of emotional response from you. Well,
3: you can't teach that. You can't teach that as a vocal delivery, can you?
4: No. Of course you can. Well, it can't be taught, but you can learn it. And you can learn it by singing a lot. Yep. And singing in front of people a lot.
3: I imagine that you also learn it by listening to a lot of other singers a lot and listening to a lot of other songs and sort of getting to the essence of what makes this song great. Does this song actually say something to me? And then interpret it in way that- way I sincerely doubt that even the great Emmylou Harris could take a, a song with a bland or vapored lyric and give it some genuine emotion she, she has to feel it she has to believe what it is that she's singing that's why she's got nothing but the best songwriters
4: yeah she's always been a great song curator you know and that's part of her skill it's part of the skill of if you are a great singer a great interpreter rather than a great singer but a great interpreter then you you've always got your ears pricked up for a song that you can do your thing on um, she's certainly, between her and Lanois, like I said, I think I know who who came up with what here, but they certainly did a good job. Yeah.
3: And we've been speaking a bit about the honesty that's in her voice. And I think there's as much about a singer who was at that stage of her life. I mean, what would she have been, about 50 years old or something like that? when?
4: Yeah, she, late 40s, I think.
3: Late, yeah. late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. and she'd already had a lot of success in her life. She wasn't uh, you know, 22, 23 you know, when she started out singing with uh, Graham Parsons. Uh, yeah. She'd lived a lot of life, and she'd had a couple of daughters, and she'd had a couple of marriages, and she sings these songs with a world weariness, and that's why it's honest and believable. And really, once a lot of the songs on this album are sung by her, I no longer belongs to Steve Earle. You might hear it on his Train coming Common album and think, Oh, it's nice that he took that back. That's a nice version, but it's Emmy Lou Harris. For sure.
4: Yeah, and that's the mark. That's, of course, that's the mark of a great singer that when they get a song and it becomes theirs, it's tough luck for the person that wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: look, I, I mentioned someone like Steve Earle, who as I said before, had professed in a written article and in an interview, how much he admired and loved her. I think he'd be rather happy to say, take it. It's, yeah, for sure. it's yours. You know, I, I can't own this song. You know, I think he'd be quite egoless.
4: No, he's a he's a, he's a good spirit. Be more than happy. He, he's, a, Steve Walzo's got another song. Doesn't really matter.
3: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, another song of three hundred. <laughs> now, as wonderful as that song is, it's still not a radical departure from what we've known of before. So uh, a song that is a radical departure, we've already sort of gone and mentioned this by name, is Deeper Well.
1: Sunburner.
3: one thing that I noticed and I've, I've sort of got it in my head to suggest to Ben Eisen the host of all time top 10 podcast as a song topic is all time top 10 one chord songs
4: yeah yeah
3: I can't recall is this in D minor I'm not sure it's D minor or A minor the one chord the whole Way through, and yet you never feel tired no, of. No,
4: it. it's actually I, I heard it more of, of a of a modal kind of song. A lot of these songs are because you don't really hear the third, which you don't hear a lot in in a lot of blues and especially really traditional blues. They always try and avoid it, and the vocal moves between a kind of a major and a minor feel. So it settles on being on one or the other, but it's definitely one chord. It's definitely got that kind of drony, almost Celtic sort of
3: feel about it. Right, right. She would have been very familiar with a lot of the Celtic tradition. I mean, I know this is a Daniel Lenoir composed song and it doesn't sound like a traditional Celtic song, but she'd be very familiar with that tradition, as I'm sure Lenoir would have.
4: Been. I, I've got a theory about this song in that I reckon it might have started as a Lenoir backing track. Like just, oh, okay. just an idea, because um, from what I can tell, she and somebody else wrote the lyrics. Somebody called David Only. I think he's a singer-songwriter on uh, on the Rounder label. That's when I looked him up. I'd never heard of him. Okay. She's got hold of that and maybe got together with him and come up with this incredibly dark kind of, um, you know, because that's what the music suggests. It's, it suggests a very kind of gothic atmosphere about it. But yeah, it sounds like to me that Manuel might have originated some, because I'm sure he's got a guy with, uh, well, at the time it would have been tapes, I suppose, like tapes and tapes of just ideas it sounds like something off Beauty of Owner or uh, Arcadia.
3: Yes, absolutely.
4: Yeah, the, uh, it's got the same kind of vibe as The Collection of Jean-Marie. I don't know if you know that song. Um, there's a song called The Collection of Jean-Marie. It's about a kidnap. Well, it's all one chord, and it uh, tells a bit of a story. You know, it's a very similar kind of thing, very modal. doesn't know whether it's major or minor.
1: j'ai marché toute la soirée. Ton toujours près de mon cœur
3: what really sort of makes this song and will be the production uh, and you know with all manner of guitar effects and you know sustain and backwards sounds uh, you know that hypnotic tom-tom drumming which May or may not be a sample as you suggest from Larry Mullen. The really super low bass hum and, and, and there's a groove there. Yeah,
4: And there's some kind of, well, there's some like Indian war chants mixed right back. I don't know if you've noticed them. I think it's Daniel Lanois doing that. It sounds like, like the desperate call of somebody with their foot caught in a trap or something. Oh,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, well, that comes in late in the summer because it tends yeah. to, to build up. Yeah, it, um, it builds
4: up. There's a shaker. A shaker kind of comes in, a, in a, after about a minute and a half and that kind of almost signals where everything else starts coming in. And, um, I mean, things seem to be added and subtracted all the time in this song. You know, you'll, things just flood across the spectrum. And uh, I, th- I think this probably would have taken the longest to mix on this album. That's what it, it feels like to me. To tell you the truth, I, I've listened to this album millions of times. Not millions, I'll be, I'm exaggerating, but it's her voice and it's what you listen to you listen to her story and then because i've had to listen to it a bit closer i've noticed all this other stuff which i suppose subliminally you listen to you hear it when you hear, listen to it that i don't think it's meant to kind of capture too much of your attention unless you really listen to it closely
3: maybe the reason behind that is you know she's giving a completely different sort of vocal delivery to anything else that she does on the album We i was speaking before about dynamic and Fragility. A lot of the other songs, and this song—I don't know—evil isn't quite the right word, but she almost sounds like a woman possessed, and there's no change. In the vocal delivery, it's, you know, uh, I went to the river, but the river was dry. I fell to my knees and I looked to the sky. I looked at the sky and the spring rain fell. I saw the water from a deeper well. And it, it's the same tone of voice. And that's that's not a bad thing. That's what the song required. There's a lot more emphasis there on the arrangement, on the musicianship. And she's telling the story. Don't get caught up in my vocals, just listen to the story. sounds like she
4: compresses her voice somehow. It's a different voice to it, like you said, from anything else on the album. Well, it's pitched a little bit lower than most of the other stuff for a start, I think, and then she sort of does something. It's one of the few songs where uh, she's almost like playing a character, but, yeah, it, it really works for this one.
3: There's at least one or two other songs on the album where she's definitely playing a character. I mean, I think Orphan Girl, which I want to bring up later on. Yeah. But, yeah, certainly playing a character on this song.
4: For sure, yeah. The
3: other thing about this song is because there's a bunch of themes running through the album and there's nothing that's, I think, overtly biblical and yet I think that this song and Orphan Girl and Every Grain of Sand definitely have some sort of gospel-type connection going there and the whole lesson to be learned here, you know, they're all lessons about greed and just when you think you've got plenty of everything, you want to get more. I'm sort of wondering whether or not there were fans or, or Daniel Lenoir might have been a fan of The Treasure of Sierra Madra with Humphrey Yeah,
4: Booker. oh, possibly. Yeah. I know Dylan was. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, Daniel Lanoir is a, is a religious person, so that might have had something to do with it too. Yeah, well, definitely those three songs are definitely almost in the realm of being gospel songs. Um, Orphan Girl, even though it's not really about – it's a prayer in a way and – yeah, Dylan's song is from that period, so it's going to have that element to it.
3: I've heard some people sort of suggest that Every Grain of Sand is almost him saying about, I've left religion behind. And, yeah, I completely don't see it that way. I still see it as a, as a song of faith.
1: In the time-
4: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I don't really hear much of, of that in there. It's not like one of the songs off um, Slow Train Coming. It's not It's not preachy.
3: I think you'd left that behind a little bit. I mentioned before, just in passing, but I thought it was worth sort of bringing a little bit to the discussion a bit more, was the film that came out, I think it might have been the same year, uh, Sling Blade, that Daniel Lanois wrote the music. And I actually rewatched this for the first time in about 15 years. Too, really, too I ago. saw it
4: when it came out and I haven't seen it since. I, I remember really liking it, so I usually watch films I really like at least twice.
3: I watched it about three times You know, at, when it came out, sort of twice at the cinema and maybe once on VHS. And I, I rewatched the Blu-ray maybe about two, three weeks ago, and I wasn't so sure that it held up for me as well as it did back then, but there, there's still something, like for a first film written and directed by Billy Bob Thornton in that regard, I think it's pretty extraordinary.
4: Has he written another movie since then? I, I know he's been in lots of them. But
3: I- he's directed a bunch of stuff, but I'm not sure whether he's actually written. I mean, I, I know that any of the film fans who might be listening to this are shouting into their devices saying, you call yourself a film fan and you don't know that he... I mean, did he write Bad Santa? I, I don't know. All right, anyway.
4: No, but, I, no, he didn't. <laughs> I
3: don't think he did. But he certainly showed he was a good writer. But the thing I wanted to take about that was the Lenoir score. And he was definitely in the same headspace while writing the music for Sling Blade as he would have been for recording Wrecking Ball. The opening scene in the film where Billy Bob Thornton is in the hospital, in the institution, you get the actor, I've forgotten who it is, who's talking to him while Billy Bob Thornton's character is staring out across the lawns of of the hospital. And you hear this really sort of shimmering guitar one chord droney sort of music and you get the feeling there's some of that that shimmering sound that you get on a song like Where Will I Be comes from that and then there's the moment and a spoiler ahead for those of you who haven't seen the film but it's a you know 20-year-old film. I'm allowed to spoil this. So, uh, there's that moment late in the film where Billy Bob Thornton's character is, you know, he's preparing his plan of revenge on the Dwight Yoakam character and you see him standing outside the house and the camera pans around him and you get this really dark, low, rumbly guitar and you think, my goodness, it yeah, yeah. sounds like something out of May This Be Love or out of Deeper Well. I don't know if he's still sort of doing sonic experimentations. It's been a long while since I've listened to anything else that he's recorded. but the
4: well, last I heard of him, he'd, he'd produced Neil Young's La which is a while ago now, and it, it was just a solo. I think he's gone off the – I mean, you know, like, like a lot of producers, they have their time, uh, and then they kind of fall out of favour a little bit. But um, he certainly every second person was using him at one stage there. Well, I think a lot of people were copying it too, and there are a lot of people here copying it, that, that sound, and uh, – I said, well, that, once that starts happening, it becomes just a, you know, a cliche in a way, and, you know, you just heard it everywhere.
3: So who do you think was the most guilty party? <laughs> what, well, here? Uh, well, who do you think may have copied who was a, a, a thief of Lenoir's style of production?
4: Oh, oh look, I don't, I, I, I don't really want to name any names, but I, I just think um, – no, no, just a lot of. Uh, I mean, he, I did him. There's a couple of cigars albums where I, um, I, I took a few of those ideas. Okay. Uh, um, so I was one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a classic example. Cause this, this won't. He won't mind. Richard Pleasance's soundtrack stuff that show uh, Sea Change.
3: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I forgot. I he wrote
4: the music for that. It's very Lanoir in, uh influenced, I think. So that's one. And you just heard it everywhere um, for a while there. You get a reaction after that, and then everything starts becoming really dry, unprocessed. And that that happened for a while, you know, (laughs) after that.
3: I'm sort of wondering, though, if Lanoir had taken any influence. And it's, it's interesting, this is a good segue, you mentioned Neil Young. If you sort of recall the score for the Jim Jarmusch film, Dead Man. Yeah, yeah. And really, I tend to think that some of the sonic experimentation... I mean, you know, maybe Neil Young at the time said, you know, I'm a real big fan of this producer, Daniel Lanois.
4: Yeah, it's, it's really possible. I'm sure Daniel Lanois is a fan of Neil Young's too because, you know, uh, a lot of those guitar sounds, the detuned, like drop D and all that kind of stuff, and it really does... A lot of it does come from Neil Young. So maybe it's a Canadian thing.
3: Neil Young, through the 90s, was... I mean, like, he'd long been sort of like doing sonic experimentation with Crazy Horse, but... Particularly in the '90s, where you know, the younger you know, grunge musicians were sort of hailing him as godfather of grunge, and he's coming out with these sort of rumbly guitar sounds. I mean, not that I'm saying that Dead Man sounds anything like a grunge record or whatever, but sort of paraphrase, you know, what Neil Young had said about tonight's the night. He found out, you know, with Harvest, he was walking in the middle of the road and he had to go into the gutter. And certainly, his sounds in the '90s were very much in that guttural vein. I wouldn't be surprised if Lenoir had been a fan of albums like uh, Sleeps with Angels or "Ragged Gloria. Yeah, "Ragged Gloria, and, yeah. And, um, and certainly I imagine he would have been a big fan of, of the Dead Man album.
4: Yeah, it's in that area. He said, I think Neil Young likes to make all his sounds happen right there and then, right on the spot. If he can't do it in real time, he's not that interested, whereas Lanoir will tinker away. There are definitely similarities in the approach, which is the uh, uh, fucking up the sound so, so that it it's not, doesn't sound particularly like it, just a guitar plug into an amp anymore. The big thing about wire that uh, I, I haven't heard mentioned much, but I hear it is the fact how he combines digital and analog technology. And okay. I, I, think that, I think that's a really big part of his sound. A lot of the delays he uses, I can hear that they're digital. And a lot of them I hear, I can hear that they're analogs. I can hear the, the way they're which very much a record producer's thing. But it's interesting because it's it's probably why it's hard. To, it's easy to copy. It's not easy to actually get. No, nobody's got all the outboard gear that he has, and nobody mixes them the way he does.
3: I'm glad I'm getting like an engineer's perspective <laughs> on this, because I certainly wouldn't have picked that up. He's
4: spoken about it too, but you can hear it. It's just the way, like all great producers, the way he finds a space for everything, and the space that he finds might not be where a conventional producer might put it. He doesn't mind to mess with the head a little bit and put a tom up in the left-hand corner, you know, and just crazy things like that, which is, you
3: get a fair bit off on this album. So while we're speaking about Neil Young, mm-hmm. how's that for a segue? Brilliant. You're, I can
4: tell you you're a professional mate I can tell
3: I've done this once or twice before <laughs> <laughs> So there's a couple of songs on the album that have Neil young connections and there's a title track obviously wrecking ball. I love both versions. The Neil Young version originally appeared on the Freedom album, which we covered a long time ago on the Love That Album podcast. And that version is very just piano-based and a little bit of light percussion, a little bit of light drum kit. There's a very sort of big room open sound to that piano in there. Not quite reverberant, but it sounds like it was recorded or meant to sound like it was recorded in... A, a huge room with big ceilings yeah or something. it probably was yeah. it sounds um, almost sad if anything whereas the version on Wrecking Ball it's more guitar based and I'd love to know there's this sort of chimey sound I mean is it a chime what do you reckon that is
4: I think it's probably just guitar harmonics uh, with a bit of delay on them or something? Or, hard to know, with with some of the sounds. I mean, there are some places through here where there are synthesizers and you wouldn't expect him to be using a lot of them, but some of those rumbles you're talking about, I think some of them are synths. But, yeah, I, d- I don't really know what it is. It's a bit, it's a bit of a weird one. But the, the only thing I kind of know about this was that if you didn't know it was Neil Young singing backing vocals, you wouldn't pick it.
3: Oh, uh, look, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I think his voice is pretty distinctive and I don't think that there's much on this that sounds very... Different to what I'd heard of him before, but I don't know, maybe i just have a, a young dar or something yeah. like
4: that. Yeah, yeah. you probably do, because I, I certainly don't. I'm only a casual Neil Young fan. I, I'm not I'm a complete diehard, but this is one of the songs I heard first. I can usually pick Neil Young. He's got one of those voices that, you know, it, you can't really mistake it. He's either trying not to do the Neil Young voice here, or he's just singing a bit lower than he normally does, cause, and there's, there's like a breathiness in it. It's beautiful. It really is. It's one of the great backing vocals, I reckon.
3: And this is another one of those songs where Emmy Lou's voice, she uses the dynamics really, really well in this when there are moments where she almost sounds like she's going to, it's not quite burst into tears, but just she sounds very frail and fragile. It's a song about new love, I think. I just, hey, look, I'll, I'll meet you at this ball and I'll wear something pretty maybe we'll have a dance and there's just something so sweet and innocent about it.
4: Yeah, so the, the, the sadness in it is obviously subtext because there's not a whole lot in the lyric that can be Seen as being particularly, it's probably like, it's pretty more of a hopeful little song. It's a bit like Harvest Moon in a way, you know. Oh yeah, well right, <laughs> actually, yeah, great,
3: great uh, compa- uh, comparison there.
4: She gives it this sadness, which you could read a sub subtext in that she's frightened of the, the relationship, or nervous about it, or has been hurt really badly before, or something. You know, there's a million things you could think.
3: Well, she and probably you know, the fella who she's making this declaration to has also been. They're probably two very damaged people.
4: Yeah, well, there's that too. Yeah that's possible but it's it's one of those songs that leave, leaves it open to you to make your mind up i think about what's going on
3: she does damage very well <laughs> she does <laughs> <laughs> and the other neil young connection is a song which i think is probably the most traditional Emily Lou sounding song on the album there's really very little if anything on this that sounds like a daniel lenoir production and that's sweet old world which i think you mentioned before So, uh, are you a Lucinda Williams fan?
4: Yes, I am. Uh, again, not a diehard. I've got a few of her albums. I've grown not to, and with her later albums, I'm, I'm starting to not like the way her voice sounds compared with something like Car Wheels, which I think is one of the great albums ever. But some of the later ones, she sort of sounds a bit drunk or something. I don't know what it is, or she sounds like she's got something in her mouth. <laughs> Yeah, but i still, you know, I still think she's great. I'm not gonna be bagging her. That's for sure. She's a great artist. Oh, a great songwriter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And this is a, this is one of her great ones. And you're right. That's what I've got written here. Most typical Emmy Lou Harris.
3: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, what is it on There's an acoustic guitar and there's yeah. Neil Young playing I'm- a harmonica. And backing vocals. If I didn't know that this was written by Lucinda Williams, I would have thought, oh, Neil's given her two songs.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, it sounds like they've really close mic'd her on that. This one, they, they've used a mic like this, like a big condenser, and she, they've got her right up close. So she's not belting it; she's just almost whispering it. And it's, it's, it is another beautiful recording, but it's again uh, not not a lot in it as far as put his stamp on this one as like, like on a lot of other ones.
3: But I, I guess that's possibly the mark of a great producer and engineer because yeah, he's also a yeah. songwriter and he's. He says, I know what this song needs artistically. Well, I'm not going to stamp my ego and stamp my production sound on this. No, this song doesn't need what I usually give it. Just turn the mics on and give it a little bit of reverb and let these two fine singers do their thing. And this song could have fit in on Harvest, no.
4: It definitely could have. Daniel Landau has done that before, though. He's stood out of the way. If you listen to some of the uh, you know, like telltale signs that Dylan is full of outtakes of things they've done, he will get out of the way of a song and not do his thing. He's quite happy to do it. He's obviously, like you said, he's good enough to know when it's time to do that.
3: That helps that he is a songwriter himself and a musician. He's not just someone who knows how to sit behind the desk. Although, I mean, mind you, it could often be argued that someone who's objective enough without being a musician, but I'd like to think it's the musician and songwriter in particular in him. His musicianship
4: is obviously half of this album. Yes. So there's that. And then the fact that he can also put his producer hat on and turn on a dime and decide right there whether he's going to put his stamp all over it or not. And it is a mark of how good he is.
3: There's one more song that I wanted to draw attention to, but what were your highlights of the album? What are your favorite songs?
4: We've kind of covered them deeper. Well, I, you know, I've put little stars next to the ones that I really love that, you know, if I had to choose four songs, I never have to, but. You know, it, w- it would be Deeper Well, May This Be Love. I-, I love what they did there. It's just so revolutionary for her. Every Grain of Sand and uh, Where Will I Be. There are a couple I- I'm not so sure of on the album, but there's only two really. So the rest of it is just all killer, no filler. Yeah.
3: Well, I think for me, probably the other truly great song on the album, a great song in an album of great songs, but the one that I think kick-started a career in a way was Orphan Girl written by Gillian Welsh
1: I am in the north On God's house If you go
3: That song had only been debuted on her own album, her first album, which came out like about three, four months before. Just imagine having a song like Orphan Girl. as the first song on your first album. You as a listener, and you're listening to this lyric, you're listening to the beauty of it, and you're thinking, I hope you have a long career in you because if you can keep putting out songs like this, and obviously this song spoke to Lou Harris. I don't know whether the two of them had met before Gillian... Gone and recorded that first album with Dave Rawlings, but I once heard a bootleg of Dave and Gillian, I can't remember, at some festival uh, in America, and the guy who was introducing the show said, welcome to the stage, the greatest songwriter on the planet, Gillian Welsh, and I mean, look, for me, it's Richard Thompson, but if anyone wants to declare her the greatest songwriter on the planet. I'm not going to nitpick. She's certainly really up there in the upper echelon. She's only five albums, if you don't want to count the Dave Rawlings Machine albums, only five albums to her credit. But by God, there's no filler. It's, everything is a gem. Every new album is anticipated.
4: I would have put Orphan Girl in my top five off this album, except I actually got the Gillian Welsh album when it first came out. So I heard her version first. And I just love that recording and I love the harmony that David Rawlings sings over it and while I think they do something different on this version and make it their own I still prefer that version
3: Look, I can see that the the original Gillian and David version is just gorgeous in its simplicity they have a unique style of harmony it's not like he's singing third beneath or above or anything like that I, I listen and i sort of think what's he doing there what's that harmony that he's doing but normally to get the sort of harmonies that they have yeah, you yeah. usually expect them to be siblings you know they need to be the Everly brothers or the bull sisters or they have what we normally sort of refer to as that sibling harmony so there's no faulting that there's I don't prefer one version over the other I mean it's their harmony her song against Emmylou Harris you know yeah that's
4: right yeah well, this version has elements in it that that doesn't have it. That like the percussion bed's amazing on this. It's almost like a Latin groove. I think it is anyway. I, I love how they bring in the harmonies slowly on Nemi Lou's version. They don't they don't really come in till about halfway through, and it's used, and it's just one harmony. And then at the end, Lanoir comes in, and there's there's this, like this chorale that happens right at the very end, which is just beautiful, and it's just so well thought out. So I do like this version a lot, but I still, if I had to choose
3: one, it wouldn't be this one. How do you choose between? Perfect imperfect, and perfect. So much to recommend them both. It's appropriate that this song is almost at the close of the album and I'm going to get really weird and existential here, but where will I be the song that opens up the album? You know, it could be taken, well, you know, possibly should be taken on its own as a song of existential angst and thinking, well, I'm frightened. What's going to happen in my life? Who am I going to love? Am I going to survive yeah. war? I think each verse is told from the perspective of someone different. I mean, if you actually didn't listen to the lyrics and you looked at some of the song titles on this album, this could be with this crashing in of a new musical style. This album is sort of, where will I be? I mean, I'm taking this chance with Daniel Lenoir. What's going to happen after this? Or Goodbye, See You, Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's (laughs) there's, probably at least another couple of songs on this album that could be seen as existential to Emmylou from a song title perspective. But just taking on its own value... Where Will I Be is about where am I going to end up and I fear the grim reaper and I fear death as we get to the end of the song. And then we get to the end of the album and she's singing from the perspective of, you know, she's, I'm an orphan girl and I want to be back again with my family. I want to be with my mother, my father, my sister, my brother. No more an orphan girl. And it's it's not actually a song that's wishing on death, but it's saying I'm not, a, I'm not frightened. Of what will happen to me. It's where we all end up and i it, it's a you know, religious song. I will end up being reunited with the loves of my life, which are my family. So I see that there's a really good, really good book in.
4: Yeah. Well, it's a common theme in gospel songs anyway, that, you know, especially black gospel about uh, reuniting with your family. It was that, that thing of hope, maybe after living a pretty awful life, you'd get to be with your loved ones again after you die. So she's drawing
3: on a quite a long tradition there, I think. Sure. None of that would no be strange to her at all. She would have listened to a lot of black gospel for 100%. Yeah, yeah. I would think so.
4: So uh, do
3: you have any final thoughts?
4: Well, I, I just think that I, I can see why they put Black Hawk and, and Waltz Cross Texas at the end. Like you say, the Waltz Cross Texas is like a happy ending to, to a dark film. The the one song that I think is a misstep uh, is Black Hawk. I think it's a pretty good song, if sung by Daniel Lanois, but not by her. I agree. It's obviously semi-autobiographical on his part, I think. It's the one lyric out of all of these, and that's not a bad batting average, where she doesn't really sing it very convincingly to me. It's not a bad song, but I reckon if they'd have put... She recorded um, a Richard Thompson song at these sessions, How Will I Ever Be Simple Again. Oh, she danced in the street
1: All torn like a red barefoot in the rain. And she sang like.
3: that end up on the re-release from a few years ago i I haven't heard that but i know that she did sing a richard thompson song and i thought oh why wasn't this on the main album
4: i reckon if they'd have elbowed blackhawk and put that on there maybe some maybe somewhere a bit earlier in the album it would have been it'd gone from an almost perfect album to being a perfect album for me You know, cause, uh, I'm, I'm with you, I think Richard Thompson's the... He has no peer as a songwriter, so...
3: As of the time of this recording, his latest album just came out two days ago, so I think I have to pick that up this week.
4: Yeah, so I was trying to ca- catch up with... It. I-, I loved his last one,
3: so... Still, the the yeah. Jeff Tweedy produced one, I think. I'd like to have heard her do something like Beeswing. I- yeah, yeah. I-, I mean, it's it's a very sad song, so that would have fit the good of this album.
4: Yeah, it's a very male song, though, isn't it? It's, you, know, I- you
3: know what, I, I think... A lot of great singers don't shy away from doing something from the point of view of the opposite sex. It's just like, I'm telling a story. Forget that I'm Amy Lou Harris. I mean, Paul Kelly, he's got at least half a dozen songs in his back catalogue that he's written from the perspective of a woman.
4: Yeah. I it's written from that perspective, yeah. But, um... Oh, look, I'd love to hear her do it. It's a great song. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, Christy Moore did a great version of it. But uh, even How Will I Ever Be Simple Again, it's, uh, it's very much... It's a song about a soldier in a war zone looking at a young person just going about her day while there's kind of... Battle is going on around her. And so it's dark and from a soldier's perspective. So so that's the same. So I don't know what I'm talking about, really. So it would have been the same kind of problem. It's one of those Thompson heartbreakers, you know. It's, it's one of those songs, he, yeah. There's a clip of her doing it with him on YouTube. So. Oh, I'm, my heart's breaking just thinking
3: about it. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so pretty much there you go. Listeners, we're madly in love with this album. Musically <laughs> inventive, lyrically challenging, I mean, not by the virtue of the fact they weren't songs that were apart from a couple that were written specifically for the album, but she makes them her own, so it's in that way like an original album. So they're lyrically challenging, great storytelling, it's cohesive, and based on a couple of things that you've said over the course of the discussion, Shane, it's a great headphone album. Absolutely. Catching those little details. It's the sort of thing you want to lie awake late at night and play yeah. loud.
4: It's definitely, then you really notice where, where he's put everything
3: is just, uh, you know, that's where a big part of his genius is. Once again, yeah, full kudos to her for taking a chance on recording an album like this. And like I miss the Wrecking Ball tour i think i was overseas at the time but i got to see her a few years later on the red dirt girl tour playing at the palais theater here in melbourne and she did a good combination of these type of songs between you know wrecking ball and red dirt girl and a lot of the older stuff as well because you know you had people like buddy miller who could play anything and is a great singer songwriter
4: that spy boy album the live one is a classic example because what lanoir does with the guitars on the i may this be love on this album he, he kind of does that whole hendrix thing but in his own kind of way, those dreamy kind of guitars, and then Buddy Miller sort of had to go, <laughs> go out on the road and try and reproduce it, and he did it. I've got to say, he did a pretty good job. Oh, he's
3: a he's a fantastic player.
4: I would imagine that trying to capture that kind of sound, he, he would have had to scratch his head a little bit and work out how to do it. I think, but he's he's
3: also a great producer in his own right, so. Uh, He's sonically adventurous, and there you go, another great songwriter, great singer, and a fantastic producer, I think. He might have actually produced a couple of albums ago for Richard Thompson as well. Yeah,
4: yeah, he did. He did uh, the last one, I think. Oh, no, the last one Jeff tweeted it.
3: So, all right, listeners out there, hopefully, please write to us and let us know you think we got it right. (laughs) If there's anything that we missed contextually-wise, if you've not listened to this album, and hopefully we've roused your curiosity, go Get a copy of Wrecking Ball. It's just so worth your while. Absolutely. It's just so sonically beautiful. And then go back and listen to you know, some of her older albums. One list of Shamer, which I only sort of caught up with in the last week listening to it a little bit, was Cowgirl's Prayer. My friend Pat Monahan went and said that she was starting to move away. Starting to get a little bit more adventurous with "Cowgirls Prayer." Yeah, it, it's not quite in the wrecking ball Sonic adventure phase quite yeah. yet, but it is her starting to do something a little bit different.
4: She's always been a song chaser. She, I, I've got one on my camera. It's called "The" – Does a version of the Donna Summer song on the on the radio.
3: Oh, I'd heard. I haven't heard that, but I had heard about that. I, I think, wow, that's that's amazing.
4: Yeah, it's great. It's really good. And so she's always had some of that in her, I think that she'll go anywhere. If she likes the song, she'll do it.
3: All right. What we'll do at this time is we'll go now to the album. I love segment that, as I said, at the beginning of the show is being done by my good friend, Dave Blom. Uh, Eric Peterson will be back in October to do the segment again. He'll have hopefully come back refreshed from his sabbatical, but uh, Dave Blom is now going to talk to you for a few minutes about an album that he loves from, uh, Perth band Little Birdie their album Big Big Love out of 2004 and uh, Shane and I will be back on the other side of that segment to close off the program you're listening to Love That Album with Morris here and Shane over there
5: four members over their career. Singer, guitarist, and main songwriter Katie Steele fronting the band with Matt Checker on drums, Simon Leach on guitar, and Scott O'Donoghue on bass. For live performances and post this release, Fergus Deasy joined the band on a permanent basis on keyboards and vocals for both recording and touring. Little Birdie were another of a very long list of Perth bands that were dominating the Australian music scene in the mid-2000s alongside the likes of Eskimojo, the drones Jebediah, The Waifs, the John Butler Trio, and the Panda Band. Katie Steele's father Rick is a local blues musician in Perth and her brothers Jesse and Luke were in the Sleepy Jackson <coughs> on to Front, Empire of the Sun. Katie's then boyfriend, Justin Burford, was also a member of Sleepy Jackson but ended up as the frontman of End of Fashion who we were about to play their first show after a four year hiatus. Thank album was produced and engineered by Paul McKercher, who was given the role after Katie had heard his work on Augie March's album, *Sunsets*, one of the subjects of a mystery box episode of Love That Album. The album, Big Big Love, was nominated for four ARIA awards in 2004. Best Breakthrough Artist or Album, Best Rock Album, Best Producer and Best Engineer. Apart from the songs from their previous debut EP that had already had chart success that were included on this release, three further singles were released. Beautiful to Me, Excited, and Tonight's the Night. it's i up
1: on you, take your time.
5: highlights the band's ability to write rock and pop tracks that highlight Steele's unique voice that was able to cover songs like the Nancy Sinatra classic, These Boots Were Made For Walking, right through to Split End's Six Months In A Leaky Boat. Little Birdie were able to cover a wide range of styles from country, folk, pop, flat out rocking tunes right through to the heartfelt and often very haunting ballads. Two out of the four songs from the band's self-titled debut EP, which was released previously to this album, were included in this release. The third made its way onto a Japanese version of this album, and both of the songs that made it onto this album were re-recorded. The previously played Andy Warhol, which you just heard, which had its name reverted from its original title for this album from I Should Have Known, and the band's most iconic song, Relapse. The version on the album here, Whilst very good, doesn't quite have the mind <laughs> that the original EP's recording, and the banshee wail at the end of the tune, the letting out of frustration and seeking of freedom that is represented there, doesn't quite hit the same tone as the original version on the debut EP. It's still a very enjoyable song to listen to, and for mine this song was always a good indicator of Steele singing on a given live performance. The comparisons to Kate Bush and PJ Harvey were being made from day one when this song was released
1: Live on. The
5: Reminiing this album was a bonus live CD, Live at the Anmore Theatre, which was included with five tracks upon it. One of these was a tune from the debut EP that was their second single, Baby Blue. It's a pity that they didn't include this track on the album itself, given how positive the response was when it was released as a single in its own right. It was the tune that I made mention of when talking about the Japanese version that had this single on it. Too
1: young for you, but am too stupid to see?
5: At the time the band was proving to be And so prolific in their songwriting And so hard for the record company to keep up That they decided to release a standalone single This is a love song This tune never made it onto any of Little Birdie's albums But was included in the bonus live disc of this album To create excitement for when the live single was finally released Post this album Big Big Love Little Birdie went on to release two more albums 2007's Hollywood and 2009's Confetti which had a bit of a Memphis feel to it. Katie Steele has gone on to have a solo career and is about to tour for the first time nationally solo. Big Big Love made a big big statement as did most of Little Birdie's releases. They are always worth listening to.
3: We're back, Thanks very much, Dave, for uh, filling in so wonderfully for uh, Eric Peterson. And uh, we'll have you back on the show sometime in 2019. Maybe the two of us need to do a program together. Shane, let's uh, talk a little bit about what you have on the horizon. First of all, where can people who want to hear more about you, or want to hear some Bondi Cigars music or Shane Pacey Trio music, where can they look you up? Well,
4: both acts have... Our web- website, um, trio.com and au. That's where our gigs would be, and both of them have shops in them. Uh, we also, both bands have um, Facebook pages, which are pretty easy to find. That's about it, really. I think we don't, you know, there's, the Bondice Cigars have got a few things coming up. The trio's doing Bridgetown Blues Festival coming up in November and lots of gigs around the place. you
3: coming down to Victoria for anything?
4: Uh, yes, I think uh, the trio's coming down in January oh, um, for a little run. And I'll let you know about that.
3: Thank and, you uh, very much. Yep, look forward to uh, coming down to see you and shaking hands and meeting up personally. That'll be that'll be wonderful. Well,
4: it's my favourite my, my favourite town, mate. You know, I'm not. It's where I'd really want to be. But uh, yeah. yeah, yeah,
3: Melbourne rules.
4: <laughs> well, I don't live in Sydney, so I, you, you can bag Sydney, man. I'm, I'm 100k.
3: I'm 100k out of Sydney. So I'm all right. I, I, I shouldn't really say that. I've got you know, <laughs> some very wonderful listeners in Sydney, so I don't want to go yeah. shitbagging their town. Sydney has its charms. Yes. Uh, Okay, I'll I'll, uh, add those links in the show notes. So uh, please look them up. Some wonderful music from the cigars and from uh, Shane Pacey, his own trio. Uh, You like your blues funk, you'll uh, you'll really dig what Shane can put down. So let's talk a little bit about October of 2018. That'll be episode 117, if my arithmetic is correct. And I'm going to have another pair of first-timers on the show. We're not exactly 100% sure what the album is going to be because we've sort of been digging this back and forth. But the two guest presenters are two gentlemen who I'd heard on Ben Eisen's all-time top 10 podcast. One of them is a fellow called Brandon Schott, and I'd heard him. I don't even remember what the episode was, but I liked his description. I liked how he talked about music, so I contacted Ben and said, I'd like to uh, do a show with this fellow. he's pro- uh, provided me with the details and uh, away we went. And then Ben suggested his friend Jeff Perlman, who did a show with him just a couple of months back, and said, I really think you'll get along very well with Jeff. So I thought, well, I'll get the two of them together, make this an all-time top 10 special. And we're going to talk about XTC because we all have a mutual love of XTC. At the moment, we're still sort of trying to negotiate what the album under discussion is going to be. Further details on the Book of Faces once that's agreed, but it's definitely going to be XTC. not sure whether it's going to be uh, – it might be English Settlement. Not sure. Could be English Settlement. Could be nonsuch. such
4: that, that would be my vote.
3: What, what's that, English <laughs> Settlement?
4: Yeah, that's my favourite. That's, like, that's, the, that's the classic double album of the 80s, I think.
3: I have no idea why they ended up you know, cutting five songs off and releasing it as a single album.
4: They did, but well, the one I've got, they, they released a whole bunch of them on it in numbered vinyl. I, I do have one of those, and it's that's the one you need to have.
3: But yeah, it is definitely a favourite of mine, but I don't think we could go wrong with discussing any XTC album. I'll be keeping an ear out for that, your podcast. I'll uh, definitely hope we do it justice. But uh, So I can tell you the co-hosts, Jeff Perlman and Brandon Schott from the all-time top 10 podcast, and I can tell you the band is XTC, but I'll confirm on the Book of Faces uh, sometime over the next week or so if I haven't already done so by the time this podcast comes out as to what the actual album is going to be. What else can I tell you? If uh, you haven't already joined the Facebook group, you can do so by going to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album we'd love to have you join we like talking about whatever albums are on our mind you can feel free to post an album that you listened to just this morning talk about an album that's frustrating you an album you haven't played in years ask about an artist who you think may have lost the plot or you you might want to talk about a particular guitar solo anything you want that's music related as long as you keep it friendly you can keep it challenging no problem about disagreeing with people just always be nice that's the motto be nice to each other there's a lot of nastiness in the world let's be nice to each other <laughs> i'm getting all hippie at the end of this program i don't know why so that's pretty much all the housekeeping once again thank you so much shane for being a part of this episode i'm really really grateful uh, to have had this conversation with you and hopefully we can lure you back with something next year sure time. so until october be nice to each other listen to some great music What some great films and send us an email to make some suggestions of albums you'd like covered if you want Uh, our kitchen at yahoo.com.au and until october stay nice all the best cheers
4: Time. I want the key to your heart. If you would be so
1: kind, if I have the key to your heart, then I could find.